Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to have Corbin Petro as my guest on the Pulse podcast today. Corbin is a native Ohioan, go Buckeyes, and graduated from Yale University. She worked broadly in healthcare consulting before attending Wharton, where she earned her MBA. After Wharton, she returned to consulting at Bain. She transitioned to the operating side as the chief operating officer of the Massachusetts Medicaid program and went on to found and serve as CEO of a joint venture between Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and four New Hampshire hospital systems. Today, Corbin is CEO and co-founder of Eleanor Health. I'm thrilled to be able to chat with her today about what she's building at Eleanor Health to take care of an extremely important patient population and one that I've been passionate about throughout my career. Hi, Corbin. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you, Arpan? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. Um, Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us uh, today, and we're really excited to talk more about Eleanor Health, talk about, you know, the state of addiction treatment and uh, psychiatry in America, and also hopefully touch on what's on everyone's mind these days, which is COVID-19 and, you know, particularly the impact that it's having on MBA students who are graduating or looking for summer internships in the next few weeks. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to the, the discussion. It was great meeting you a couple months ago when I was at, at Wharton, um, speaking at the Wharton Healthcare Conference. I loved, I loved my time at Wharton. I love getting to spend time with students and, and getting back on campus. That's great. It's always fun having our most successful alumni back to impart wisdom on, on all the current students. So maybe as we get started, it would be great if you could give us a brief summary of your career paths before Wharton and then after Wharton and how it led to you and your current role at Eleanor. Sure. Well, um, I've, I've been in healthcare my, my whole career um, and some of the, the key threads have, have resonated across my time, both before Wharton and after Wharton. And those have been a focus on vulnerable populations, um, unique payment models and delivery models and integration with, with technology and data. Prior to Wharton, most of my time was spent on the consulting side with hospital systems, technology, performance improvement. And then post-Wharton, um, you know, I, I, we spoke about this before the show, I graduated during the economic downturn of 2009. And so while I wanted to go into an operating role, I spent a short, a short amount of time on the consulting side again at, at Bain, again, working, working with healthcare clients, but then moved pretty quickly into operating roles, both in the public and private sectors. Mm-hmm. I'm, def- I'm definitely an operator and thrive on execution. So mm-hmm. the, the shift from consulting to running things was an easy one and, and the right one for, for me. So post, um, post Wharton, uh, worked, worked at Bain, uh, then was chief operating officer of Medicaid in Massachusetts. And then I launched and ran a joint venture between a uh, health insurance company and four hospital systems that included running um, the estate insurance market and then launching a new business as part of that joint venture. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, for the past year, a little over a year now, I've been um, co-founder and CEO of Eleanor Health, which you know, aligns a lot with those components of my background that are the mm-hmm. themes. So working with vulnerable populations, developing unique uh, payment and delivery models, and sort of that integration with technology and data. Got it. Thanks for giving us that overview. I think it helps to sort of set the stage for the rest of our conversation. I know when you were in Philly for the Healthcare Alumni Conference um, back in the winter, uh, we chatted a bit about our shared Ohio roots and your father's career in public service. Mm -hmm. I think it's always interesting to hear 
people's first forays into healthcare and how people got interested in healthcare. Can you chat a bit about how your childhood helped to shape your career aspirations? Sure. Well, as, as, we, as we talked about uh, back at, at Wharton, I, I grew up uh, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and I, you know, I was part of a family that really valued hard work and public service. So it's really the service side of healthcare that, that attracted me. Um, you know, there were, there were a few years growing up where my family went around the state talking to people of all walks of life to understand what they, what they needed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Ohio has 88 counties, um, perhaps you, you know that, uh, mm-hmm. the majority of which have a county fair. Uh, sure. one, summer, one summer, I went to something like 75 county fairs. Oh, wow. um, and in talking with people who have different backgrounds, needs, uh, and economics was really a striking part of that experience. Um, and really, the, the takeaway for me was that healthcare is the ultimate equalizer, something that impacts all of us at some point. And I was, I was really impacted by how different experiences can be across people depending on their economic background, you know, where, where they're situated, rural, urban. And so healthcare, you know, as a service that spans both, both public and private sectors and affects all people regardless of their background was really what I was, what I was drawn to, is sort of trying to create some equity um, within that. I think that's really fascinating how your, you know, family sort of interest in public service sort of started your own thoughts and aspirations towards um, this idea of service and, and healthcare. Kind of going off of that tangent, can you tell us a bit about Eleanor? Um, I'd be really interested to hear about the competitive environment that Eleanor is a part of today. Sure. Well, Eleanor is is in the substance use disorder and addiction space. Really, our our model is providing evidence-based whole person care at an outpatient level. So we have have clinics, um, we deliver 100% of our care virtually, and we send teams of peers out into patients' homes. So it's a very comprehensive whole person approach. We can talk a little bit about that later. But when you think about the competitive environment, for decades, healthcare has viewed the brain as separate from the body um, and prioritized acute interventions over long-term whole person care. So you know, we've stigmatized addiction as a, as a moral failing uh, and allowed many of the treatment models to, be, to exist without regulation and without evidence. Um, you know, what, what we know now is that addiction is a disease. It's a chronic medical condition that requires long-term management, just like diabetes or any other chronic condition. Yet we've continued to, to view healthcare, mental healthcare, particularly addiction, as separate from the rest of healthcare and without holding mental health care to the same standards. So the competitive environment is really a reflection of this. Um, many of our most expensive treatment options in this country are reserved for, for those who can pay a lot of money. And most of those models are not based at all on evidence and outcomes. So in many ways, it's been a cottage industry led by people who have had experiences, their own personal experiences in the space, and have then launched um, programs that, that match what was successful for them, mm-hmm. which, you know, we, we appreciate anecdotes. We appreciate stories that people have. Um, but we at Eleanor, we really believe in, in evidence. And so we built our model based on what the evidence tells us that works. So that's, um, that's, that's sort of where, where I think the environment is. I think um, the space has, has evolved in, in that there, there's emerging more thought and focus on mental health and addiction, but there's still a long way to go. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of our listeners can appreciate, you know, as you mentioned, the stigma um, that exists in our society with regards to folks who have addictions who are suffering from substance use disorders. I think what a lot of people may not realize though, without having been on sort of our side of the equation is the stigma that exists within the medical community in and of itself. So, I mean, I, I can say from my own practice that while there's definitely a stigma in the medical practice sort of against patients who have psychiatric illnesses, there's even a stronger stigma within that subset of patients um, who have addictions. And I've even run across situations where psychiatrists will refuse to treat patients who have um, substance use disorder. So it's, it's this subset um, that sort of has an initial stigma for being a patient with a psychiatric illness and then a second set of stigmas and barriers they face. Um, so I think it's really great that Eleanor has taken the stance that um, we need to do something to provide accessible care um, that's sort of equitable for a patient population that has been really marginalized historically. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that's that's exactly right. And I think everything we do has to follow that purpose. So the language that we use, you know, our, our spaces, how welcoming they are, mm-hmm. making sure that we don't, you know, in, in this in this space, unlike other parts of healthcare, um, firing patients is a thing, right? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> a patient who relapses, which is, you know, this is a progressive, chronic, relapsing disease. Firing patients who who relapse has been part of this aspect of healthcare for a really long time, and it would never exist anywhere else in healthcare. And so, you know that that's so important to make sure that we are coming at this in everything that we do with with this you know evidence based unique approach. Yeah, um, getting to that evidence based approach that you started to mention is sort of clinic based with care delivered virtually. Can you sort of dive into the comprehensive approach that Eleanor takes in treating this vulnerable population? Yes, absolutely. So um, as, as I mentioned, we're, you know, everything we do is, is evidence-based. So our, our model includes um, medications. So we provide uh, Suboxone level medication. So Suboxone is, is, you know, the best in evidence-based treatment mm-hmm. for people with um, a substance use disorder. And we also address all co-occurring psychiatric conditions. So anyone who walks in our our doors gets a full um, physical and psychiatric evaluation. And then we address within our care model all co-occurring psychiatric conditions. So medication for those conditions as well as managed within our model. Okay. Um, Then the next thing that we include in our care model is um, therapy. So working with a a licensed therapist. individual, group, family, we provide all, all different types of, of therapy, mm-hmm. both in person as well as delivered virtually. Okay. And then the, the, the third component of our model is what we call recovery services, but what, what is essentially addressing those non-clinical barriers to care. So we talk a lot about social determinants of health in the healthcare space. And that's, when I think about that, I think a lot about the economic components, so whether mm-hmm. a person you know, need support with housing or healthy food or transportation, we certainly provide those. But when I think about the recovery services and the non-clinical barriers that we provide, a lot of them are really around creating community, uh, meaning and purpose in people's lives. Um, really those, those components that are critical to retaining a patient in 
in recovery mm-hmm. and that, you know, aren't, aren't re- there's no, you know, there's no fee for service code for create community or Absolutely. help establish meaning and purpose in, in your life. Um, yeah. So we, we, those are the, the key sort of three components of our, of our model. We deliver those, as I mentioned, in, you know, warm and welcoming clinics that we, that we build, mm-hmm. as well as through a fully virtual model and through uh, our team of what we call community recovery partners. They're essentially community health workers that are peers, okay. those with a lived recovery experience. Mm-hmm. They go out in the community, they go into patients' homes. So really, um, you know, again, a very comprehensive approach, both from what we deliver in terms of, of services, as well as how we deliver those services. Got it. So, you know, Eleanor sort of touches all the points. You talk about medication, you talk about the co-occurring psychiatric illnesses that are really common in this patient population, um, the critical component of psychotherapy, um, and then also addressing these non-clinical barriers. I'm curious to hear how Eleanor is incentivized to take this comprehensive approach. And then in particular, how uh, does Eleanor align those incentives for its patients and its clinicians? Right. So I mentioned early on that a big theme in my career is unique payment models. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that certainly holds here. So it's it's critical for us to deliver all these different components of care to be in a value-based payment model to align with payers who, who believe in, in this model and believe in the outcomes that we can achieve by providing this this level of support to patients. So typically when we go into a market, we we partner with a payer who agrees um, to, to incentivize us and to pay us in, in a certain way. And that includes, you know, essentially multiple different types of, of payment models. But mm-hmm. the, the main takeaway is that we're, you know, we're incentivized to retain patients, to, sure. to spend that extra time with them, to create access. So availability, you know, same day access is really mm-hmm. important for us. And you have to, you know, that, that costs money. Um, uh, reducing total cost of care uh, is is another sort of component that we're incentivized around in our in our payment models, and so the way the way we deliver that is really we 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 rely on some of these services that are typically not reimbursable in a fee for service environment, and so we have our peers who are really the glue to our model who are spending a lot of time with our community members, um, again going out to their homes to to deliver the right level of care. We're investing in you know resources that that will help retain those those patients in care and so our model really you know our our goal is to have a patient with us for five years okay um you know as you as you know you know after a year in recovery your risk of relapse goes down significantly but after five years in recovery your risk of relapse becomes that of the general public Mm -hmm. and so that's that's where we feel like our job is is done um not completely done but um done in, in terms of our, our working with, with patients. And so creating a model where we're incentivized to keep patients in, in our model for that long is, is unique and um, is, is one that we've had to develop side by side with payers and um, are, are essentially pushing it out. So, you know, most, as you know, most recovery platforms or, or providers are paid fee for service. Right. Um, so they, they're really incentivized for patients to relapse. I mean, I, I hope they don't actually want that, but, but from a financial perspective, they make more money every time a patient relapses. Sure. Um, we've, we've tried to build a model where we, um, 
we're incentivized to, to keep patients in recovery. Yeah, and I think a big piece of that, as you alluded to, is sort of that retention and having sort of that five-year goal, like you mentioned. Um, in my own practice, I've seen that, first of all, the sort of enrollment and attraction of this group of patients and also the retention of these patients is a real challenge. Um, I think particularly in behavioral health and specifically when you're talking about addictions in which the fundamental underlying disease process is one that impairs attention and concentration and motivation. Um, so to achieve that goal that you need to, to show you know, the payers and the stakeholders that Eleanor is delivering results, um, how does Eleanor think about attracting and acquiring new patients? And then also um, making sure that Eleanor can retain those patients over the long run. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that um, both these components, both you know, attracting and acquiring patients as well as retention of patients is, is a challenge. And candidly, it's, it's unique um, within this space that I hadn't experienced in other parts of healthcare in that it is incredibly omni-channel um, mm -hmm. how patients find us how families find us. So families are a huge component of supporting a, a patient coming into to treatment. Yeah. So from a, an acquisition perspective, you know, I mentioned that we enter into markets in partnership with health insurance companies who believe in our model and who want their members to come to us. And so that's part of our acquisition strategy is having those payers make sure that we are highlighted, um, that they are connecting us with the right um, uh, providers in the community who can refer to us, the right community organizations who can refer to us, mm -hmm. that we become a true partner with them to to better serve the communities that that we enter. Um, so community members come to us through a variety of channels. Um, again, the family is often involved. So I've, I've often been told that it's all about the moms in this space, mm -hmm. that they are often the ones who are um, you know, encouraging family members to come into treatment. Mm -hmm. So we need to be in tune with, with all those channels. So, in, you know, in time, as, as we're in markets more and more, our community members come to us through word of mouth. So that's, that's a big, okay. big part of it. But whether it's, you know, SEO or Google ads or, um, you know, paid, paid social, making sure that we're building those channels, as well as the relationships with referring providers, referring community members. So that's, that's sort of on the acquisition side. Okay. It's incredibly omni-channel. It requires sort of nurturing all those, all those channels. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the, re on the retention side, that's really where our comprehensive approach is so impactful. You know, we know that addiction is progressive, chronic, and relapsing. Uh, and our community recovery partners, those peers, um, or coaches, you know, whatever, whatever language you, you prefer, uh, sure. provide that consistency and frequency of outreach that, that helps drive our high retention rates. So, um, you know, they're, they're constantly engaging and being a point of contact, connecting with our community members in the ways that they prefer to be communicated with. And, and then, you know, being flexible in how we deliver our care in, mm -hmm. in our clinics, virtually and in patients' homes also drives retention. You know, I heard a quote from a community member the other day that we just, we kept, we kept calling, um, we kept trying to engage and ultimately with, with, you know, a fully virtual model, you know, she had, she had no excuse anymore, yeah, yeah. right? And so you, you take away the, again, that, that friction and the excuses and, you know, it helps, it helps to retain those patients in care. Yeah, absolutely. I, I imagine the omni-channel 
kind of piece of acquisition presents some challenges and some advantages. I guess on the one hand, there's a lot more avenues that you have through which you can sort of get your name out and, you know, get folks through the door. Um, but it certainly creates challenges in terms of how do you allocate resources to various channels and prioritize um, in a way that's strategic and drives results. So I could definitely see that as um, sort of being a double-edged sword in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, again, you have to nurture all of those channels and some of them you have to invest in more sort of upfront and mm -hmm. then others have sort of a long tail of, you know, supporting your growth over time. So, you know, developing relationships is not something that happens overnight. So developing yeah. that sort of those relationships, those trusting relationships with with providers who who want to refer to us with EMTs, community organizations, those, those take time, but then those relationships give back, you know, over time and the impact is incredibly long lasting. Same, same holds true for your first couple community members mm -hmm. in, in a market is make sure you get that right because, you know, the word of mouth, the reputation, all of that matters, especially in this space where it's really hard to find um, reliable information and education and hard to know sort of, you know, who, who are the, the, the best players, the best providers in the space. Yep. So, you know, over time, um, you know, we've, over time, I would say we've, um, we've seen the impact of, of those relationships, but, you know, it took, I would say it took a little more time than I thought to, to curate those relationships, which meant that we, you know, we learned quickly how to invest in some of the, um, the more digital marketing channels. Yeah, absolutely. I think our listeners have a good sense of, you know, Eleanor and the clinical model. Um, I'd love to shift gears a little bit to the topic that's been on everyone's minds these days, which is COVID-19. First and foremost, how are you and the Eleanor team doing? You know, we're, we're doing, we're doing well, you know, I think we're doing, um, really well compared to when when things started to become a challenge when things started to 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 close and this started really emerging mm -hmm. you know, seven eight nine weeks ago that was a really challenging time for for everyone um yeah. and particularly for our clinic-based teams um our community members we we just we found that we needed to to support our teams internally a lot yeah. more as well as as our community members so you know er, early on in in this we we struggled with on a day-to-day -day basis just stabilizing mm -hmm. the business making sure that our team member members felt safe going to our clinics we've kept our clinics open we mm -hmm. of course have converted most of our patients to to virtual um, but we continue to have uh, a need to keep those safe spaces open for, for many of our patients. Um, it's an important part of their recovery pathway for many of them, coming into a physical space, seeing certain people engaging in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, but early on, you know, we had you know, 50, 60% of our staff were, were out for some reason. So um, okay. uh, because of, of medical, because of childcare, a variety of reasons. And so just keeping those um, keeping our operations stabilized was um, was a challenge. Uh, we internally have done a lot that I think is is interesting from a sort of human capital perspective. So we we wanted to be transparent and to support our teams as much as we could during this time. And so we instituted um, daily emails 
from our medical directors, just highlighting what was happening and what any, any changes. Um, we have weekly all hands meetings. We have um, a weekly email that I send out to, to the entire organization. Uh, we have, we've added just those as, as major touch points. Yeah. We obviously have communicated what resources are available to, to our teams. And then, um, we, we also implemented something that I think is really cool, which is, um, three times a day you can come, come on to a zoom call and basically for five minutes, just do a, a meditation. Oh, wow. So we, you know, anyone can come three times a day and, People, you know, some people haven't used it, but other people use it on a regular basis. And we've, we've just found that that's been a good support for, for our team members. Um, and we've constantly been evaluating and tracking uh, which of these things are working. Mm -hmm. And our, our internal net promoter score has skyrocketed. So our team feels incredibly um, close to everything that we're doing. We feel like we're very much supporting one another and it's 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 really brought us all together uh, yeah so it sounds like after those sort of initial somewhat painful transitions that I think every firm in the United States felt um, you know at once COVID hit um, Eleanor has really found its stride in figuring out sort of how to best support its, its team um, I think one thing I've realized is the importance of transparency so it's really uh, interesting to hear that um, you know, you've had daily emails from your me medical director as well as a weekly email from yourself to your um, teammates. I found that in general, healthcare organizations do a pretty poor job of communicating, um, you know, with their teams, letting folks know what's going on. Do you see that as something that will be sort of a long lasting outcome of this, that sort of regular update communication, um, even once the epidemic pandemic ends? Yeah, you know, we've we've um, we've stepped back as a leadership team and and asked, you know, particularly through asking everyone in the organization through through surveys and talking with them, what's you know what's worked and what hasn't. And yeah. reality is, is they they everyone loves the um, the access and the transparency and those weekly all hands meetings. And so we will probably keep those as a component of um, our business going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, may not be as as long. They're they're a full hour right sure. now. But just an opportunity to update people that, you know, it's almost like, you know, in, in medicine, there's often a, a, a team huddle in mm -hmm. the morning. Um, so, so doing something like that. And I, I love it, too, because it really keeps me close to the business and to our community members. So yeah. a highlight for me of each of those all hands meetings is is when we open it up in two ways. One is to hear about a community member story. And all of those are, you know, as, as you know, this is an incredibly uplifting space in healthcare, yes. um, mostly filled with with positive stories. And so, hearing those stories really keeps us resolute on our on our vision. And the second is highlighting team members and how they've gone above and beyond for um, for our community members or for for you know our our team members. And so, highlighting that in every in every all hands meeting um, is something that I really want to keep 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 going moving forward. That's wonderful. Another area that I've been thinking about the long lasting impacts of COVID-19 has been um, this transition by necessity in most cases to virtual models of care. Um, you mentioned that, you know, Eleanor uh, over 
the last eight or nine weeks has shifted to a primarily or purely um, virtual model using sort of various modes of telemedicine. Um, I'm curious to hear from your perspective, first of all, what that transition was like. And then secondly, do you see that as a long lasting impact? I know that a lot of this transition to telemedicine was catalyzed by some, you know, changes in regulation from CMS and um, HHS. And I wonder if you think those will be long lasting. Do you think things will roll back to the prior state once sort of the national state of emergency is over? How do you think about that? Yeah, so we, I mean, we, we built our model with technology as a key component. So we've always been able to provide 100% of our ongoing clinical model virtually. So that mm -hmm. transition wasn't difficult from a technology perspective. Of course, you know, moving patients to a, a virtual model who, you know, there's, there's obviously education and everything that you need to do in, in those transitions. But yeah. we, we quickly introduced a virtual intake and induction process as the Ryan Haight Act, which is what you're referencing. Yeah. Provisions were suspended and we're now allowed to initiate treatment um, and medication virtually. Uh, so we moved there pretty quickly. It's, you know, that's, it, that adds a lot to the process. It means yeah. introducing, you know, supplies, trust, et cetera. So we, mm -hmm. we mail um, uh, urine drug screens to our members. We have to monitor that as well as heart rate. Um, and so there's, there's now this supply chain component. And there's, you know, from a medical perspective, there's probably some limitations on the acuity of patients mm -hmm. who are appropriate for a full virtual induction initiation um, process. So that um, that's been something that we're monitoring closely is the, you know, what, what level of care can we, can we provide? Um, but we went from uh, about a 10%, about 10% of our care was delivered virtually to 90% okay. over the course of, you know, two weeks was that shift. And then for the past four weeks, it's been about 90%. Um, so I think, you know, the question of how much of this will persist after the, the, you know, the coronavirus and the challenges um, are, are relieved a little bit is, is a question of both sort of the regulatory environment. So will, will the, the suspension of some of these regulations continue? It also comes down to, the, to payment. So yeah. many payers have said, oh, we're going to pay you, you know, we're going to pay for these services. So that's always obviously important to align, <laughs> align incentives. And then what's the, what's the patient preference? So we've, we've asked our current current community members, what's, what's your intent going forward? Is it to be, you know, 100% virtual, 50% virtual, 100% mm -hmm. in clinic, trying to get a sense of what that shift might look like. Personally, I think it's going to be, you know, somewhere between that 10 and 90%. It's, sure. you're still going to have, have community members and patients who access treatment through a brick and mortar or a face-to-face -face relationship. That certainly supports building some of the trusted relationships that are important in our model. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have some who, uh, who just, you know, will have a hundred percent virtual relationship with. Um, we found that most of our, most of the patients who are coming to us in a virtual way, there, there appears to be, you know, some possibility that we would engage with them in person. So they're, they're okay. still, you know, within close enough proximity to our, clinics, even mm -hmm. though they're coming in fully virtual. So these are, these are questions that I, I ask every day and I look at all the data that's coming in and I try to figure out what, what's going to be the mix um, going forward and, and 
you know, how much of that's going to be virtual, how much of it's going to be uh, in person in the home and don't have the answer to it. But that's, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, that's why our comprehensive model is, is so important is we're able to deliver care in multiple different modes and settings. Yeah, I think uh, you hit it on the head. You know, I think payment and regulation often drive so much of the so many of the decisions that you know get made in the healthcare arena. But I think it's equally important to think about what the patients want, what's their preference. So it will be interesting, I think, to see um, how things sort of play out in the six or twelve months after um, things return to some some state of normalcy. So you've built this wonderful company, Eleanor, but it's not your first foray into entrepreneurship. So you've started companies before, you created a company within a company before, and have also helped to create and launch a joint venture. I wonder if you could tell us how the launch of Eleanor fit around what is clearly a priority for you outside of work, um, which is your family. Right, so I, you know, everything we do as humans, we're all complex, there's, there's a balance. So, you know, I've, I've been married, I have, two young children, um, and they're obviously, particularly in these times, um, <laughs> important and present. Uh, yep. And so I think, you know, everything we do is, is it's important to put in, in balance and in, in perspective. And so I, you know, I think actually the fact that I'm a parent and that I have um, varying priorities and being pulled in a, a, a lot of different directions, I think that helps me be a leader. It helps me relate with my team. Um, and so, you know, I think creating, creating priorities is a, is a day-to-day -day balance. Um, my, my wife is also the CEO of a, a emerging organization. She works in the, the tech and, and sports space. Mm -hmm. And so that balance is, it's a, it's a day-to-day -day balance. And so I think, um, you know, Eleanor and my family, they all, they all fit together. Um, yeah. and I think my, my team knows that. Um, and that's, that's become even more and more clear during, during these times where, mm -hmm. you know, childcare is part of my day now yeah. as well. Yeah. So, um, but I think, I think in general, it, it, it makes, it makes me a stronger leader. Right. And something else that I know came up in our conversation back at, at the conference a couple of months ago is, you know, a lot of your fellow CEOs in the healthcare space are Caucasian males. So what does it mean for you to be an LGBTQ woman leading an organization and being such a thought leader, um, not just for this part of healthcare, but for the entire industry as a whole? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I, you know, I, think it's, I think it's very important for people to be visible, especially if they represent underrepresented groups. So we're all, you know, we're all looking for someone that looks like us. Uh, and that's, that's actually part of what's driven a dearth in, of diversity in, in organizations. It's that immediate affinity that you create with people who look like us. Yep. So, you know, within Eleanor, I'm very conscious about making sure I keep diversity of thought, keep part of our organization. So that often means looking for people who don't look like me um, and people who have varied experiences and, and you know, those, those experiences shape how they think about healthcare and our products, and all of those experiences are valid and important. Um, you know, one of the experiences that I had early on in my my career um, was attending a a conference that was focused on LGBTQ MBA students. It was mm -hmm. I actually went there as 
as a recruiter recruiting for an organization that I that I worked for and it was my first exposure to people who looked like me who were getting MBAs and it really inspired me to to to, you know apply to Wharton and and to to go to Wharton that conference the reaching out MBA conference is um, I'm now on the board of it so it's been an important part of um, my you know my transition into a leader um, Mm -hmm. and I think it's important you know, as, as an LGBTQ woman, that's, that's a piece of who I am. You know, I'm also a mother, a wife, a CEO, a Midwesterner, a Wharton grad, a vegetarian, a runner. Um, and all those are important to my identity, my identity and how I lead. And I think it's important that, that, you know, leaders are, exhibit the, the multifaceted components of who they are. Yeah. I think it's so important to be cognizant of the idea that, you know, we always seek out people that look like us, think like us, talk like us, um, and to actively sort of try to go against that tendency to seek out folks who think differently, who look differently, who act differently. Because I think it's only when you get that diversity that you can really grow as a person and build something really, really successful. Switching gears a little bit to the current environment and what it means for Warden students. So like we mentioned at the top of the podcast, um, you graduated from Wharton as the Great Recession was hitting or had hit. Um, I wonder if you could reflect a, a bit on what that was like. I think it will be very um, meaningful for second years at Wharton right now who are getting ready to graduate um, or maybe who will have graduated by the time this podcast gets released. Um, first years who are going out um, to the summer internships with many folks who, you know, had um, internships and full-time offers either pushed back or rescinded and trying to figure out how to, you know, move forward. Yeah, well, I, I joke in a, in a not funny way that I, both of my graduations, both from undergrad and from business school were at the worst possible time for pursuing a, a career. <laughs> so I graduated college in 2001. My first oh. job was September 4th, it started September 4th, 2001. So September 11th obviously happened mm-hmm. one week later and sort of forever changed, you know, everything um, we were we were doing and impacted the economy pretty dramatically. Uh, I graduated from Wharton in 2009. Um, and I still remember in, in 2008, in the summer when I worked uh, at Goldman Sachs, in banking, just the, the collapse that was occurring around us. We, we talked early on about how I still have um, my Bear Stearns and my Lehman uh, summer mm-hmm. banking offer letters, and so what that what that meant for us as we were leaving business school is it was, you know, when you think about how it pertains to you know mental health and psychiatry, I mean it's it's it, there's some trauma there, there's of uncertainty, course. there's um, going into an unknown. We had never experienced it, and we had just invested a whole lot of money and time in. Who, who we thought we were going to be and the world we were we thought we were living in and that that changed dramatically and I think the same same exact circumstances in terms of the impact on mental health you know the investment that folks just just made in them in themselves exists now for M, for Wharton MBA students who who are graduating yeah. we've heard from a couple um, Wharton MBA students who are set to graduate in 2021 where they, you know, they'd love to do some work for us this summer because their summer internships fell, fell through. So yep. we're certainly seeing that. It was, it was a very similar situation that happened 
when I was graduating from from business school. You know, I think I think the advice is that you know this too shall pass and it mm -hmm. will um, evolve. And so it's important to continue to get good experiences, get unique experiences, um, and but but be cognizant of the fact that you know, your mental health is important and it's important to take care of each other um, during these times. Yeah, I think one thing that we're all realizing, like you mentioned, is that uncertainty um, and just having to live with this constant state of, of not knowing what exactly comes next, which is not something that most Warden MBA students are really good at or want, want to be doing, you know, at, at this point of the year um, with graduation around the corner. Yeah. As the first sort of wave of COVID-19 ebbs and I see a second wave coming of sort of um, the behavioral health implications, which you alluded to as well. Um, you know, what happens when entire country has been socially distancing and isolating itself for months on end. Um, on top of that, it looks like COVID itself may have some neuropsychiatric effects on the brain. Um, I think we're going to see this increase in incidence of depression and anxiety and, and a lot of other psychiatric um, sequelae, which certainly will also include substance use disorders. Um, as that starts to happen in the coming months um, and psychiatry continues to stay sort of top of mind for many across the healthcare ecosystem, um, you know, I see Eleanor is continuing to grow. Where do you see Eleanor sort of hiring MBAs? What types of roles, what types of skills um, do you think are really important for the types of folks you'll be looking at? Well, you made, you made some interesting points about the sort of second wave of um, the coronavirus and the impact on people's mental health. I think that will persist. We've, we've certainly seen it now. Um, and it's, it's caused us to change some of the language that we that we use. So we've talked mm -hmm. a lot about substance use disorder from a clinical perspective and addiction. But we started talking about, um, you know, using substances to cope mm -hmm. um, because we're seeing that more and more frequently. So you know, I think I forget the statistic, but the increase in in purchasing alcohol certainly have people using alcohol um, or drinking alcohol more frequently and those patterns are being developed right now mm -hmm. um, for for dealing with whatever whatever sort of challenges people are facing with isolation and uncertainty and those those will certainly those patterns will persist and for many they will be they will turn to you know a substance use disorder or or addiction yeah um so in terms of specific skill sets um that we look for in everyone we hire um but including mba hires so you know, obviously it's really important in what we do for people to be mission mission driven, mm -hmm. to really be focused on um, uh, meeting meeting our community members where they are. You know, we, we specifically screen for, you know, use of stigmatized language and, you know, making sure that, that people don't have that, that sort of, you know, predisposition toward um, stigma. So that's one okay. of the things. In terms of, of skill sets, um, you know, as we as we evolve and augment our business, we're looking for people who are you know proactive, um, who are intellectually curious, hardworking, humble, uh, as well as people who are strong at at building partnerships, um, 
have a strong understanding of the healthcare ecosystem. Um, those are those are some of the sort of qualitative skill sets I think we look for in MBA hires. I think when a when an MBA hire comes to us, you know, or somebody comes to us from Wharton, there's there's a basic expectation of certain sure. quote hard skills that they have, and so we tend to focus on some of the more qualitative um, aspects that really show that they're a good fit for a you know a mission driven organization. Um, in a space that has has historically been confronted with a lot of stigma, and with a company that's a startup, right? So we're mm-hmm. we're small, and so we look for people who are are scrappy and who are willing to do you know roll up their sleeves to get the work done. Yeah, uh, for folks uh, who are interested in learning more about um, Eleanor, maybe talking with a team or hearing about you know positions that are open, how, what's the best way for um, those people to sort of get in touch with the team. Well, check check out our website um, and you know start start there to just better understand what we what we do and what might might interest you. We um, you know we have a lot of uh, we have a number of roles in in North Carolina, which is where our first state mm-hmm. we launched is. We have five five clinics there. Um, we are launching this week in New Jersey, so oh, wow. we are opening our first clinic um, virtually on on Thursday this week, which will mark our our foray into into New Jersey. So certainly some some great opportunities that are emerging in New Jersey. And then, um, as you know, our headquarters are in Boston. Some of yep. our folks who are on the national team are are remote, um, but you know we 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 have a lot of. We talked about marketing earlier. We have we have a lot of. Um, you know, need in sort of building out that team and those capabilities. Uh, so, you know, look, look at the site, look at the people who are in the different areas that you're in and, you know, reach out on LinkedIn or write, you know, info at uh, eleanorhealth.com or email me, you can email me directly at corbin at eleanorhealth.com. Wonderful. Uh, well, before we uh, end uh, the podcast, I know you said, one key takeaway for MBAs is this too shall pass. Any other um, advice for warden MBAs specifically and specifically for sort of graduating warden MBAs? I think, you know, stay, you know, stay true to, um, you know, what, what you want to do with your career and, and think about how the different roles that you take now are going to evolve in that way. But also think about, you know, where the world needs you now. So, you know, one of my, one of my favorite books is David Brooks's road to character. Mm-hmm. And, and part of how that, part of what the lesson is in that book is sort of to be drawn to where you're most needed. And so that may, you know, given where we are, that may change people's potential career trajectory um, is thinking about sort of where, where they could be used most, most readily. Thank you, Corbin. Um, well, it's been an absolute pre- pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, thanks so much for, for making the time um, to chat with me and to all our listeners. Best of luck with the launch on Thursday, virtually in New Jersey. Um, and I hope that you and the rest of the team uh, stay safe. Thank you, Arpan. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much. Bye.